Those Space People, a podcast series of casual cosmic conversations with people working on exciting space projects. Today we have Helen Tung with us. Helen is a UK trained barrister and founder of New Space 2060. She has clients from all across the world and she is currently based in Dubai. Welcome to the podcast, Helen. Thank you. Thanks so much for welcoming me. Uh, Helen, you've donned a myriad of hats even before entering the space sector, right? Uh, was it your experience with maritime law that brought you into space, or what really attracted you into the space sector? Yeah, thank you. I I guess that would be a logical, I think, deduction, particularly from a legal background. Um, but actually, what really got me into space was meditation of all things, <laughs> and it's the person of meditation. I think that got me into it. Um, of course, when we talk about space, we talk about the universe. and we talk about our connection you know with others and it was really to be honest with you i i got into space on a more spiritual level and then i got into it on a more practical level where i also had the opportunity to go to singularity university and spent 3 months at nasa um and i think that as an accumulation of events and also trying to co-found a satellite propulsion startup um sort of opened the door for where i am now you know helping entrepreneurs helping businesses um you know and and being involved in space now so yeah that's fabulous i've did uh, once i i guess about 5 years ago i did a 10 day program at vipassana center in india oh so, wonderful yeah i mean it's it's fabulous that it got you into space but maybe that's a topic for another day when we meet in person sometime <laughs> So Helen you worked with arbitration uh, you also deal with mediation and a lot of uh, dispute resolution methods so how do these legal instruments and everything else work differently for space let's say in comparison to maritime law mm. that's a really really good question in fact i would probably take it a step back in terms of dispute resolution how matters are resolved So as you know, you know space is very, you know, broad brush and when we think about space normally we think about, you know, state to state interactions um in the same way it's what we call public international law and then when we have issues related to private entities then it's usually private law or commercial law. So if I could maybe explain it like this so as you may know we have um you know treaties and we have a uh, forum such as the international court of justice we have public institutions like the united nations of um outer space all these entities play a role in either developing legislation you know um resolving disputes on a state level right and then you have the private sector which is becoming increasingly more important because of you know recent laws particularly in the US in Luxembourg which allows for say private space mining and you know increasingly greater interest from the private sector so to give you an example is since being in the UAE here for the last few years i've contributed to the reinsurance of rocket launches and satellites in terms of the legislation in the UAE in terms of guidance for space startups and then now um there is if you've uh, been you know watching the news over the last few months there was also a launch of the space courts so you might ask well well how does that work well in essence you know the idea of a court be it you know for private or be it for international law purposes is pretty much the same so you have some judges you have um advocates for both sides of a of 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 a dispute and then they 
they're normally what we call public forums. So you and I, if we're interested, we can go to these courts. Now, when you talk about arbitration, it is slightly different. So arbitration is a bit of a closed setting where the private, the parties between themselves can choose what language they want to resolve the dispute. They can select their own judges, which are arbitrators. They can select the forum. So there's a lot of um, active decision making that's actually in the process of arbitration, which differs from a public setting, which is when you go to court in a public setting, you don't get to choose the judge, neither do you choose the time or date. But in arbitration, it's quite unique. One of the things that uh, I personally feel as we move and we can probably anticipate as commercial you know, activities increase, then the chances of disputes will arise purely on the basis of contracts. You know, So the volume goes up, You know, be it good things or bad things, you know, what you can imagine happening or, or contracts being breached or, you know, issues arising, it no doubt will happen. So the idea of a space court at this point in time, we're still in discussions in terms of how it would work out because we're working on a user's manual, though the idea being, you know, for me personally, the unique thing about space, like any subject area, so you mentioned about maritime, is obviously you've got the law and then you've got the subject matter expert. So for me, I think it's really important. We don't just, you know, sort of get a whole bunch of judges from whichever jurisdiction, although this is going to be important to just do space law. We need some training. In other words, you know, in the same vein that you're in engineering, and I'm sure, you know, in engineering, there are many different fields of expertise. I think one of the important things is just an appreciation of how the space sector works, you know, like how satellites, you know, orbit and, you know, how rockets are launched. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm dumbing it down to the basics, but I think this will be important in the same way when we look at disputes in, say, the construction courts um, and different countries will have different niches, you know, family law or, or you know, um, you know, commercial law cases, I think this is going to be quite important because the nuance, you know, between, at least from my own, you know, um, understanding in in, in, in you know, space engineering from ISU, is they, these nuances are important. And then, of course, these judges will be most likely guided by experts. And one of the things I did think up or, you know, believe in actually is it's actually useful to have maybe an international body to actually draw up these lists of experts. And they don't necessarily have to all be engineers, you know, they could be astronomers, they could be professors, um, you know, you could even have, you know, people who are concerned about, say, you know, space debris, you know, the climate. I think this is really important because Once a court hearing starts, to give you an idea, let's say a dispute starts, there are very certain deadlines. I use a very simple claim, let's say in the UK or under, let's say, DIFC, you have 14 days to file a claim, 14 days to respond. You know, if you need to apply for extensions, you do that. But, you know, there's a very, what I call strict timeline that that sort of starts. And when when you anticipate, and if I talk, talk about arbitration, which is a private setting, but even then... When let's say an arbitrator is is onboarded, then even the arbitrator would want to talk about timescales. Yeah, so it's like okay, so when can I expect, you know, let's say you know two weeks, three weeks to get your claim form, whatever it is you want to claim for. I need a defense. We need to get the experts in. It's not really a good idea to scramble around for, to look for an expert, you know, because it could take a lot of time. So I think having a panel which is probably, uh, let's say, an international panel that's 
recognized by all the other arbitral institutions or be at the court system i think that will be highly highly useful if we're thinking about how can we resolve disputes um effectively because you know you might be aware as well there are some jurisdictions which take longer than others and probably to the point of ineffectiveness and we probably don't want to do that um especially when you know um i think in the sector particularly in the private space sector where i think resolving disputes quickly is going to be really important for time and money well helen you've worked across multiple geographies right in the uk and now in the uae and also with clients from across the world so what uh, are the differences that you've observed in in how different cultures or different geographies and countries approach space you know because what's interesting is the difference in attitude towards space law or space sustainability between established players such as the US or the Europe versus the emerging players such as the UAE or Southeast Asia or Latin America so how do these uh, different players look at space sustainability or space law how do they look at it differently yeah so i think you've asked a very good question and to probably give you an insight as you know the major space players are the us and russia and you know there are great players like india and canada and japan and china and so you have i suppose you could say what we call a legacy right what we can say space legacy from you know the initial what they call the space um you know space race as it were and then you've got the new players and it's really really exciting i have to say the likes of australia new zealand um i think bahamas i think someone even mentioned to me but there are there are some jurisdictions which i think are better positioned than others and i'll use a really good example of the um luxembourg space agency so they were one of the if not a pioneering country that launched the space resources um legislation which allows for private companies so okay let me take a step back so if let's say you're a state and you have the intention of going up to space and to mine an asteroid whilst you could probably do that you can't take it down to earth because if you bring it down to earth the chances are it would have to be for the whole of humanity it might be limited to a museum you know it's for some sort of you know un purpose like that but if it's a private sector you know according to the rules in luxembourg you can keep it yeah now this is all in theory because you also mentioned an interesting word which is the environment um i can just imagine if something like this happens the environmental groups will start protesting you've got the commodities financial sector probably in uproar because how can you imagine how it would change the price of gold silver nickel you know it would totally turn everything on its head and we just don't know like um what impact if we allow private sectors to do that having said that this is exactly what you know the the concept of new space and why the concept of new space is so exciting where before you have you know un treaties which in essence prohibits you know um outer space you know resources because it is for the benefit of humankind mankind the notion of the private sector it doesn't it doesn't restrict you know the entities to that extent 
So what's interesting is you're seeing a lot of developing countries or countries like Luxembourg, and they very intelligently didn't go through the EU because they knew the moment they probably brought through the EU it would take years and it would probably never come into play. But as a relatively speaking small country, they were able to decide quite quickly, yes, we want to do this and we're going to pass the law ASAP. And they were able to do that and also embrace a lot of young um, startups that were able to basically set up in their country. So there's also a huge financial incentive to bring the talent, to onboard the resources, to get these people to come and set up in Luxembourg, which is all very good for the economy. And you can say that the UAE is doing something similar, but they have an even greater vision. So this is all about in context of the country, yeah? So let's say in the UAE, you may have noticed over the course of the lockdown, there were a number of laws that changed, which really, really benefits the UAE. They allowed for people from overseas to come and set up and they don't even need a job here. They just need, they just, if they're willing or wishing to come to the UAE, let's say they want to live in a hotel apartment, but they're paid in, say, the USA, they can get a visa, which allows them to live here. Okay, so that's benefit number one. So what do you say UAE has to offer? Well, they've got the sunshine and they've got the beach. (laughs) Those are two main things. Then they changed the law, I think about a few weeks ago, to allow for um, coders, specifically I think 100, 200 coders, to get permanent residency here. You know, and and I think, you know, when I say permanent residency, we're probably looking at five to 10 years. They've introduced the golden visas, which were launched about almost a year ago. So this idea of what does space have anything to do with you know government policy it absolutely does you know since you know so there's a bit of confession I need to make so I've spent some time in Silicon Valley as I took part in the singularity program everyone looks at Silicon Valley as the benchmark for startups yeah but what I've seen through my travels and through you know teaching entrepreneurs around the world be it, you know, Switzerland, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Hong Kong, Australia, is you will see that each country aspires to Silicon Valley, but they want to grow organically. So they want to do it their own way, you know. And so when you look at the UAE, what is really incredible is they have a vision, which I literally say is a vision. When I first came to the UAE, they have a tower called the Emirates Tower, which houses obviously the 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 Macdon family enterprises and all the entrepreneurship you know, the the youth hub and all that. And they have a ministry, I think it's called, you know, the Ministry of the Future or something like this, which absolutely makes me laugh. But at the same time, it shows me that they do have a vision. You know, you think about it, you've got the Expo coming, you know, they're the first country to launch, you know, uh, the Hope Probe, you know, to Mars. There is just so much optimism that I think, whereas the developed economies I'm thinking specifically perhaps in Russia, in US, in the UK, to a certain extent, some countries in the EU, to that extent, they may be disadvantaged. But for the developing countries where the the laws are new, there are no laws on it. In fact, they don't even have a space agency. This is where it gets really exciting. I think where the resources, manpower and willingness to really, you know, make something of it. I think it would be, you know, a wonderful opportunity. And then the next question you're probably going to ask me maybe, you know, but it's very expensive to go to space. And my answer would be yes and no. If you want to do space the old way, absolutely. But I think the onset of Elon Musk and the new space movement, 
And I want to use the word movement because it is literally breaking down the barriers of space is hard, space is expensive, but the reverse, which is space is accessible. Space is supposed to be easy and we can do it. Now, Richard Branson probably did some you know, groundbreaking rules because, you know, he always talked about wanting to go to space and he finally did. And I think with the younger generation, and I'm thinking specifically of the techies, you know, in on the onset of robotics and discussions on AI and really emerging, like embracing technology, you know, post-COVID, I think there is probably, you know, a greater opportunity, a greater push for those that are really enthusiastic you know, to to really give it a go. And I'm thinking specifically about small satellites. In the past, you know, we only knew of major, you know, 500K satellites, whilst now, and I've helped a number of startups, that's why I can also speak quite confidently, is less than two, three years. They can do a prototype. They can pitch it to their governments, to the accelerators. They can even get funding. And one startup I've helped with specifically is going to be basically doing their tests on SpaceX next year. And I am just so excited because you can't imagine this, you know, 10, 15 years ago, but you can definitely imagine an entrepreneur who has no name, you know, no significant backup, yet able to really reach the skies within a very short, you know, short frame of time. So I want to say that you know, this is a golden opportunity for for all individuals, you know, regardless of which country or jurisdiction that you're from. And uh, speaking of new space, right, can you talk about uh, the new space 2060 that you have co-founded and why particularly 2060? Yeah, thank you so much. So actually, you know, as I was training entrepreneurs, I really have this vision by 2060, I would love to have had a chance to go to space. I will be about 70-something. <laughs> so you can do the maths, do the calculation. And and the idea behind that is, you know, we need to have a vision. I think, you know, part of the argument people would have is, well, you know, we went to space. Well, someone, you know, Armstrong went on onto the moon 50 years ago. Why have we never went back? And the true cynics would say it never happened. You know, it was just a, a hoax or, or you know, it was all just in the movies. But obviously, you know, I think realistically it did probably happen. But then after they reached, you know, reached the moon, I mean, there was just no incentive to go back. I have a different theory, which is we left it to the scientists. If we, let's say to everyone, you know, this is not just for, you know, the ast- astronomers, the astrologists and and, you know, the rocket scientists, but it's actually open to everyone. Everyone can play a role in space. I think it would change the thought and the thinking of what space actually means. So for me, the vision of New Space 2060 was very much opening up the sky and saying, look, anyone, including myself as a lawyer who had no background in space, how did I get involved? Well, I got involved from the law and policy side. And there is just so much work to be done. You know, when I talk about insurance, whilst it might seem like a very boring subject to some, it is such a crucial subject. Just think of it this way. You have health insurance, you have car insurance, you know, we need all this because there is a reason behind it, correct? So then if you think about it, I, you know, I spoke to some people how I helped out in the autonomous shipping side and actually saw the launch of insurance for autonomous ships. It's the same thing. No one, and I mean it generally, no one is going to risk their life or their money on a business that 
is not going to be guaranteed if there was any sense of risk. And when you start talking to businesses, and I had this experience in Japan, when you talk to businesses, why don't you go from this massive satellite to this small startup with a small satellite and have faith and trust in their technology, well, they might just laugh at you, correct? So what you want to say is, but wait a second, you can actually buy insurance that covers you in case of an incident or an accident in the same way for health insurance or car insurance. Then as a business, you're more likely to take on the risk because you're likely to say, well, actually, they're credible. Or or if the insurers are going to insure me on this endeavor, then chances are, you know, they've done the maths, you know, there is a way of assessing this kind of risk. So what is important is from turning the startup concept of, oh, this is a great idea into a proper business whereby, you know, you're going to have clients that are going to rely on you. You're going to have to have purchase orders. You're going to have to deliver. So it's no longer a prototype in the purest sense. You know, of course, as an entrepreneur, as a startup, you can probably get away with it for a number of years but then later on your clients or your customers or your investors are going to start to expect results you know you're not going to just be talking about going to space you have to actually deliver and send you know whatever you said you're going to send to space or whatever service you're going to deliver so I think for me 2060 is my own you know like goal I know there are different organizations that have earlier ambitions like the UAE has like 2030 you've got probably Elon Musk 2045 I think the Moon Village Association is something along that but it's this idea of it's an exciting you know for me it's a it's it's a date which is symbolic you know, usually we mark, you know, important dates, you know, when, you know, the launch of the first X or, you know, the first this and the first that. So I'm sort of working behind <laughs> backwards. And um, yeah, so so that's the symbolism of the date. I think it's also quite motivating to kind of work backwards, right? Because we know what we are uh, going towards. Coming back to the present, right now, the space environment is quite chaotic in terms of traffic management or, you know, orbit congestion. However, this chaos in the current space environment seems quite beneficial to established players because it's good business for companies which are trying to address these problems in terms of active debris removal or in-orbit object tracking, you know, and these kind of companies are mostly located in the US or in Europe or, you know, such established countries. So in, in such a scenario, are there any incentives for these established players to try to solve these issues for everybody else, for the whole world? Yeah, I I would probably differ in slightly in what you're saying. I agree that it's an ongoing concern to the established players, but I would probably say for the new space, probably even more so. And I'm thinking specifically of one Japanese startup called AstroScale, and they've been so successful in Japan. Um, and have had such great reviews. I and I've actually visited. I'm a bit biased because I've actually visited their offices in Tokyo. I've actually met with their founder and you know their BD people. And I want to say they are. You know, you've got to understand their story. I think this is the biggest difference between when we talk about government entities doing a job and the private sector. You know, um, Okada, who set up, who co-founded AstroScale, he had no space background. He was a financer. And, you know, when you think about what is your legacy in life, 
apart from making lots of money, is you want to solve the problem space debris, well, they're going to, you know, they say it and then they go off and do it. And this for me is the most inspiring thing about space is, and I, and I particularly want to emphasize that it's non-space players getting involved. Yeah. It's like saying, well, if a space engineer is going to solve a space engineering problem, that's great. <laughs> I expect them to do that. But if it's someone out of the, you know, out of the norm, that for me is beautiful because then you're really thinking out of the box how to solve this problem. Now, if you think of it this way, it's a chicken and egg story. So where did all this space debris come from? Well, it obviously came from previous launches of, and of which, you know, the older, you know, space or the original space players there. So the problem is not new. The idea of seeking a solution, you could say, is more new. And there are some incredible professors out there, academics, um, you know, really, for me, really, you know, pulling all the stops to try and highlight, A, it's a problem, and then B, really engaging the community for a discussion. Now, if we were to draw a parallel between space debris and the environment on Earth, there is absolutely a discussion. And I really want to say that Netflix has done an amazing job you know, to highlight problems with the environment. And I'm going as far as, you know, issues of illegal fishing, you know, the environment in terms of, you know, agricultural farming and all this kind of stuff. And and if I were to be really philosophical, I would say it's about how conscious are we? You know, like I'm, I'm sure for the millennial generation, we are far more, you know, environmentally friendly. And I think it's got a lot to do with education. It's a lot to do with the fact of social media, we're able to share, you know, information or consequences of, you know, let's say, you know, of if these turtles, they start swallowing all these plastics, they're just going to die. We can actually visually see all of this, you know, with a click of a button and not have to wait until an actual documentary comes out, you see. So I think for our generation, there is definitely, and particularly, you know, past COVID, this idea of, and I use this strange analogy, I actually thought that COVID was, in, you know, notwithstanding all the, the tragic deaths, is I thought it was an, an amazing experiment to have in terms of, you know, circular economies. You know, forget being in a, you know, space module, just being in your house and thinking about how you survive and how you recycle and how you maintain your own health and well-being. It's all part and parcel of, well, this idea of, you know, future human spaceflight. Yeah. So, so, so to come back to your point, I think, of course, don't get me wrong. I want, you know, those that are concerned and interested to continue to be concerned and interested. But going back to the same problem, why have we not gone back to space? Well, we left it to the engineers, which may or may not be a problem, but definitely it wasn't going to inspire the next generation in the sense of innovative ideas out of the box thinking, that's where there's a call for non-traditional players to come in. And it's not necessarily saying, well, the current players are redundant. Absolutely not. But rather it's a more about well, where are the synergy is coming from, you know, how, how are we able to do things differently? And I think that is where, you know, I think that is where true innovation comes in. And if I have to, you know, just label the, the the current, you know, players like Blue Origin, you know, Virgin Galactic and then, you know, SpaceX, that is bringing, that is bringing it to the public, which I think is so important because if we, if we talk about space debris at a very high level, which obviously does get discussed at that level, then at the same time we lose an audience, which is, 
everyone else, you know, the human beings, you know, it's, it's the same thing when we talk about, you know, recycling and we talk about plastics. If people think, oh, it doesn't matter me, yet they're the ones that are throwing all their plastic away. They're not thinking about, well, how do I recycle? How does this piece of plastic, this very bottle that I'm drinking is impacting, you know, the turtle that's, you know, swimming in the ocean. That disconnect is what causes the problem, you see. So then if we are able to see, well, actually, we're all part of the problem, then, you know, and of course, it's going to be difficult for someone to understand, well, how does that satellite up there in space connect with me? I always bring out the mobile phone as the example, right? People say, I have nothing. I do nothing with space. I say, look, in your mobile phone, you have a chip. This chip happens to connect to a satellite up in space. Therefore, if you have two mobile phones, you've got you double the connection. And I think when people realize it, they're like, oh, my gosh, really? So you're saying that the mobile phone is a space technology? I say absolutely. I mean, obviously, some engineer is going to correct me and say, no, actually, it's not. <laughs> it's a downstream, you know, application. But I would say, well, it's connected. But without that application, you're not able to use the Internet. So I think sometimes, you know, it's a bit of um, sharing is caring concept, like, you know, how do we share information and then dumb it down for people? You know, we don't have to always go high level and sort of be very sophisticated. And I think that's the thing. We bridge the gap, you know, like between the likes of you and me, which is you know, great what you're doing because you're actually, you know, providing a platform for people to talk about space in a very sort of down to earth manner and then, you know, allow people to understand, well, how are we part of the problem or how are we part of the solution? Yeah. I really like your example, your idea, Helen, that downstream kind of powers the upstream. That's a great perspective. So, of course, I, I do agree. There are a lot of amazing new companies, new startups, new space companies that are trying to solve problems, uh, amazing problems and make space easier and more accessible to everyone. Uh, one thing that is being done, like problem these new space companies are trying to solve is the space traffic management right because ideally in an ideal world would be wonderful to have something akin to air traffic control which we don't really have a, a well-regulated space traffic management we don't really have that so how do you see this evolving do you see do you think it's going to be spearheaded by nation states alone or given the increasing commercial participation, be led by some sort of a public-private consortium of sorts? And how do you see the space law evolve in both these scenarios? Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for asking that question because I can probably draw a parallel with autonomous shipping um, and the shipping sector where I was one of the 15 lawyers that helped um, developed some of the legislation which was then passed on a national level to the IMO, the International Maritime, and then used as guidance. So the story behind that is you imagine right now in shipping, there are shipping lanes in the same way that there are cars and there are lanes, you know, left and right. The moment you introduce autonomous shipping, which is obviously a totally different animal, even if you think about it in terms of cars, you then ask the question, okay, so are we going to have new lanes for them? Or are we going to have separate lanes for them? You know, how are we going to engage? Because obviously, imagine you have a driver that you see in the seat and then you have a car with no driver. It doesn't scare the freak out of you. You know, it, it's, it's a totally different way of, you know, understanding how is this, how are we going to engage with each other? What are the rules? What are the procedures, right? So I think the same thing is, you know, the, the very, you know, some people say you don't, 
fix it until it's broken. So in other words, until it's a total catastrophe, something horribly wrong goes, and then someone's going to be like, right, we have to put our foot down. Because usually, actually, to be honest with you, that's how um, maritime rules came about in terms of health and safety. You know, think of Titanic. You know, you needed a huge drowning before they realised, gosh, we needed people to sort of think about it. So I think, obviously, we don't want to wait until a huge accident happens. Ideally, the states are very proactive about it, knowing that the space players, and of course, the new space actors are are very proactive about it. Then I think, yeah, it's probably, I think the only way, actually, it's probably going to really work out is when you have the public-private sector. If you've got, you know, the UN and you've got, you know, a number of, you know, major stakeholders saying, this is what we're going to do. And you're going to you're going to definitely have resistance. And then secondly, you know, you're not going by you know, the majority vote. Right. And and you see, I mean, you know, obviously there are a lot of factors on at play. And if I use maritime, I give you a really good example in the maritime world right now. Let's say I was probably a bit too ahead of my time when I start talking to Asian countries about autonomous shipping because they were just not interested. They're like you know what? I asked them, what is your biggest concern right now? They're like, my biggest concern is getting a ship shipment order, which is obviously miles away from developing an autonomous ship. But in Europe, where they've got advanced technology, they've got the resources, they're up there. They're up there with autonomous shipping. Now, by the time, let's say, and I'm just using this as a pure analogy, the developing countries are interested, they're too late. You understand me? They're too late from a R&D perspective. They're too late from a let's get the roads ready to, you know, introduce these products on the road. And so what you end up having is an unfair, you know, there's no level playing field. And and I think that's the biggest concern in space from a very high level kind of perspective. So that's why I would say in terms of space traffic management, it doesn't matter if you're a new player or not, you need to get involved. Because this is also a false fallacy. People think their voice doesn't matter. They think, oh, you know, we're just a small nation state. Oh, we're just a small startup. But even though you're just a small startup, because this is where everyone starts from, you might end up being very important purely because, you know, you're able to move quickly, not like, you know, the bureaucracies of certain companies or certain states. And so I think for whoever who's listening to this, whoever is interested Continue having interest because their voice is going to be important, you know. And this does this comes to the point of having nothing to do with space, you know. Part of the reason I also, you know, set up New Space Twenty Sixty is I have a Telegram which I do daily readings. I talk about energies of the day, which seemingly is not relevant, but actually it is because it impinges on the decisions we make on our day to day basis. Yeah, so I'll give you an idea. Forget about space for a moment. That's also important. Let's put things in context. Yeah. Let's say you have a brilliant idea, but you choose never to do anything about it. So is that a loss to humanity or what? Just think of it like this. Don't think about, well, it's just my idea. It doesn't really matter. Well, the problem is if you don't think your idea is any good, clearly you're not going to be able to convince anyone else, right? You're not going to be able to convince the investors. Neither are you going to convince the world. Right. And um, and I am a so I, I can <laughs> confess something. I'm an ideas person. I remember in high school, one of the most impressive things for me were philosophers, because I thought, wait a second, the likes of Plato, Aristotle, they all died you know, thousands of years ago. But what allowed their existence to continue was the very ideas 
they had, which are now passed on generation after generation. So what I'm trying to say is for some startups or some for some individuals, their life is all about, I'm going to make lots of money. For some people, it's like, well, I want to you know, have as many kids as I can have. Some people, it's, you know, I want to develop an invention. But for the likes of me, actually, for me, it's more about the theory. You know, for me, it's more about, you know, what concepts that are going to inspire others. And I would love to use the example of Gandhi, you know, his concept of peace. And as a law student studying his autobiography or biography, you know, his concept of peace was very original. This notion of peaceful protests, this concept of, you know, um, not exercising violence to get what you want. And actually it worked, right? So, So what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that in this idea, be it, you know, space traffic management, be it space debris, we should never think it's too above us, it's too hard, we can't do anything, I'm just an individual. Rather, we need to figure out, what can I do? What do I want to do? And then, slowly, by voicing whatever thought you have, surround yourself by like-minded individuals. It could be the investor, it could be the you know, co-founder, it could be the university, whoever, and to support your idea. Now, the true test, obviously, is whether it anything happens from it. Yeah. So I've seen a lot of startups with a great idea. It doesn't fly. It totally doesn't fly because the idea, you know, basically comes to an end. They don't have the wherewithal to get the investment, you know, to get the and and let's be honest, I always say, you know, out of five entrepreneurs, only one will succeed. But I give credit to those who try. Yeah. So so I think it's it's you know, don't don't disadvantage yourself by not trying at all, right? I've, I've spoken on so many, you know, channels. In fact, I spoke with, on another channel to inspire young entrepreneurs is when does, this, when does this startup fail? It fails the day you decide to not do anything, right? So in other words, if you decide right now you've got a great idea, you're not going to do anything about it, it's failed. If you, if you say, okay, I'm, I've done so much, I've, I've worked so hard, I'm going to stop now, that's failure. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying failure is necessarily the end of it. I look at failure like, oh, I tripped over and hurt myself. You know, I, I'm riding a bicycle and I fell over the bicycle. That is, an, that is an important part of the process of being an entrepreneur. You will fall and you will fall many times. In fact, I'm the kind of advocate that would say fall quickly. Yeah, learn your lessons fast and understand how quickly can you stand up and say, it's okay, let me try again, right? Because the entrepreneur that's going to fall, cry, and say, that's it, I'm going to quit, obviously that's not for them, yeah? It's the entrepreneur that fall, cries, and says, okay, I'm about to quit, but I actually am still inspired to give this a go. That is the entrepreneur you want to put your money on and bet, you know, bet on them, you know, to, to continue doing the work. And it's not easy. It will get to a point where people will really need to decide, do I sell my business? Do I sell the house I'm living in? And I've had entrepreneurs, by the way. I can share really, you know, heartfelt example where I was in America. I was speaking to a space startup and they literally went from, you know, getting all the funding that they needed to we have to basically get rid of staff. It's either I'm going to starve or I'm going to have to sell everything including my own house and moving back with my family. And at that point, I realized he needs help. And I don't mean just financial help. 
I needed an advisor who was able to talk to him on a very sort of like, let's let's get your head straight. Let's talk about this. Are you sure you want to do this or you want to go back to maybe a paid job for the time being? And what happened was I got a very senior CEO from a very big space satellite company to speak to him one-on-one. Even she advised him, why don't you just go and sell your assets? Yeah, sell your assets, save your ass, you know, so that you can survive. And he's like, no, this is my startup. This is my baby. And I am going to do this. And so against all the advice in the world, he decided to do what he had to do. Now, Not everyone can do that, by the way, because you obviously have to live with your consequences. He did that and he succeeded. He's still a thriving startup. So what am I trying to say? The path we take is never going to be easy anyway, right? So we might as well do it. We might as well risk it. Do you know what I'm trying to say? You know, and this is where it gets very inspiring. That's why I love working with entrepreneurs is because at the end of the day, it could be space. It could be any job, by the way. <laughs> it could be anything. It could be, do you want to do X, Y, and Z? You know, just put put whatever you want to put in the gap. But you need to take that risk, listen to all the naysayers, either saying you're not smart enough, you're not talented, you're not rich enough, and you say, what the hell, I'm going to do it anyway. You know, and this is for me what keeps me going um, in terms of space because I think it is about testing the waters. It is about testing yourself more than anything because if you don't trust yourself to do it well hey how can you expect other people to trust you right so for me what I love and what I really enjoy about training entrepreneurs because this is the thing about me yes if they're going to be successful they will fundraise yes if they're successful they're going to be able to get their names you know all over the billboards and and you know all over social media but for me Definition of, definition of success is not that. For me, when I work with entrepreneurs, it's to allow them to realize, wow, this is my strength. This is what I can achieve. For me, that is success as a coach and as an advocate. Yeah, sorry, I sort of detoured from your question, but but you brought some really you know important stuff out. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's what they say about startups, right? Startups don't die; they just commit suicide. So. Yeah, and hopefully not. Hopefully they just take rest and recover. <laughs> so UAE is actually quite an exciting space player right now. What kind of opportunities does UAE offer in terms of, let's say, employment for engineers, scientists, space lawyers or other professions and space research and even startups or entrepreneurship? Yeah, thank you for that. I want to say that ent- that the UAE is unique in the sense that it's it's in transition on many, many levels. So I'll give you an idea. So let's say Australia, UK, they're quite developed economies. In the UAE, it's still a relatively speaking young country. If you're an entrepreneur and you have big ideas and big dreams, then I say UAE is a good place to come to for all kinds of reasons. And I say that um, from the perspective of you're going to be testing yourself like no other. Like let's say you are from India. I'm from Australia. Let's say, you know, you're from your own country. You speak your own language. You understand how people work. When you come to the Middle East, or at least you come to the UAE, you're going to find yourself, you're going to be in a spectrum of either really successful entrepreneurs or people who are really struggling. You're going to find yourself in scenarios where you may never envisage. For example, I've managed to negotiate deals where, you know, the investor was speaking Arabic, the client was speaking Arabic. I go, you know what? 
you guys just speak in Arabic because you're comfortable speaking Arabic. Once you guys decide what you're going to agree on and we're ready to sign the contract, just let me know. So I was sitting in the whole meeting comfortably allowing them to speak in Arabic. And, you know, you got to trust yourself, obviously. You've got to trust the business people. There are going to be a lot of business people out there. Let's, put, let's face it, UAE is a place where it attracts businesses. Flowing from that, there are a lot of different business practices. So you can imagine from me, coming from a Western perspective, it was a huge shock to my system. Yeah, and I mean it in the nicest possible way. You're going to have people who want to do business, be it genuinely they've got the product or the service or not. So you're going to have to be able to use your own entrepreneurship and ability to suss out, you know, who is a real deal. Yeah, and who is just all the talk. Yeah, and this is really important. I mean, I would say it's important generally in life in the business world. You know what I mean? There are some people who are probably able to sell more than sell less. I mean, I've had the good fortune of speaking to enough entrepreneurs, investors to really cut through the crap in terms of, you know, are you really going to be able to, you know, present? Because I'll give a really good example. I get entrepreneurs contacting me all the time. They want me to introduce them to X investor for X amount. First thing I ask is, do you have a pitch deck? Because that is for me like the minimum, right? If you're going to be telling me you have a serious product to sell or whatever, then show me you've invested time to present yourself. The moment they say they don't or they, you know, whatnot, for me, that's like next. Or for me, it's like come back to me when you do have something serious to propose. Now, sometimes people might say, well, that's not very fair. That's not very kind. But it's only because I've had to learn through my own process if I really want to help them if I really want to introduce them to an investor, I'm also putting my neck on the line in terms of is Helen being serious when she comes to approach me or is she not? So so for me, don't get me wrong, there are some really good startups. They will find their way. But the way I work is I also need to assess. And of course, you will see I also act as an introducer. I actually have my own sense of, you know, obligation to others when I introduce them, I'm actually spending the time well, not wasting the time. So to answer your question in a very open way, absolutely. There are opportunities and obviously with the opportunities, there are responsibilities and there are risks. And I would say for anyone who's going to business, they obviously need to build up their business acumen. I'm speaking the, the younger amongst us. And then for those that come in, obviously, you know, get your paperwork done, you know, have proper contracts, proper negotiations. You're not going to sign your life away if you're not going to have a lawyer. I've had scenarios where people call me and they say, hey, Helen, I need you in this meeting. I need you. Well, I tell you what, if you're serious and they're serious, then the meetings need to be organized properly. Yeah. The contracts need to need time to be reviewed. You're not going to get a lawyer in the room and say, Helen, sign this, or, or can we sign this? Or I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I need to look at this, right? I don't for, forget for a moment how much this is going to cost you. But if you're going to ask me to do my job, then we'll, we're going to have to take this home and have a look at it. Yeah, we're going to have to stress test this, you know, on, on our own terms before we know whether this is going to work. We're going to have to do our due diligence, right? And we're going to ensure that if you want your ideas protected, we'll probably need like an NDA. You know, we're going to have to question whether, you know, have you got all your IP, you know, sorted out. So so there's a lot of things where I think is is a false fallacy. Entrepreneurs think, right, we have to hit the, the road running. And of course, they work 100 hours a day, <laughs> you know, but they might lose it all if they're not understanding, gosh, 
if I'm just going around town telling everyone my ideas and I'm not signing NDAs and I don't actually have an, you know, a patent on this, you can actually lose your business. Well, forget lose the business, lose your idea and lose the business overnight. And that would be a very sad story to go around town talking about, but that would be the price you paid, i.e. your lesson for learning how to you know, become an entrepreneur. Because what is the difference between entrepreneurship to business? In the real business world, it's not easy. You know, there will be people who are less than genuine that want to take your business idea or compete with you. But as an entrepreneur, you are blessed because there are so many resources and there are so many genuine people out there who want to help you. Even the investors, the investors know they what they want is they want investment upon return, but they want you to succeed. Yeah. So this is also part of the equation. So as an entrepreneur, you are blessed with all these resources that you've got to optimize on it. So for example, if you know that you want to be successful, then you do your own due diligence. I want to have the best lawyer that's going to work with me. I want to have the best XYZ that's going to work with me. Don't shortchange yourself by going with the cheapest or the fastest or, you know. So so the sound business acumen is really, really important alongside the genius who is there developing the technology. And this we can definitely have a separate conversation because I've, in my own experience, worked with enough engineers who think they're God sent. Because, of course, with the engineering skills they have, um, they're able to develop a lot of things. I want to share with you, actually, I wrote a chapter on AI technologies, um, which is a second report, especially for engineers, um, which I did as a project with UNESCO. Yeah, And what is interesting is in my conversations with experts, they tell me, yes, engineers think they can do this, this, and this, and this, and this, which is true, but obviously they don't exist in a vacuum right? So you pull them down to reality and earth, you've got to deal with us, the likes of lawyers, the likes of, you know, maybe other academics or experts in the fields to ensure this thing, this very technology you're talking about actually can be commercialized for a start, you know, it can actually be, you know, utilized in a way that's not exploited. I mean, obviously, for a lot of um, technologists, they don't care. They're like, well, if my technology goes out into the world and it serves the world, I, I'm talking now open source and I'm thinking more of software than hardware, of course that's important. You know, that's also part of the the idea of, you know, humanity, consciousness and legacy. But if you want to bring food onto the table, if you want to ensure that, you know, people don't just use, I mean, obviously it depends on your usage, but let's say, let's assume for a moment that you really want to bring this business to life, like Microsoft, and you want to protect your interests, then that's where, you know, it's no longer a school project. Yeah, it's no longer a university project. So I'm just going one step further, only because, you know, in the Middle East, it's the safeguards that you might have, let's say in America or in um, the UK, it's not there. So that's why you have to be smart. So why am I saying this? I'm not saying this to deter anyone. Con on the contrary, it's the opposite. Because the opportunity is so great that you don't want to miss out, you want to be even smarter as to how you want to do it. So you don't wait for a problem to arise and go, oh, shit, I need to talk to a lawyer. You'll be like, let me just talk to a lawyer. Let me just get my health checked right now, you know, before I need to, you know. Um, so, so I would say yes come to visit the UAE, come do online, you know, research. And there are so many incentives out there that you don't want to miss out. Of course you don't want to miss out. And if you find that this is a place that you could try, then why not? You know, that's my that's my attitude, right? Like if you 
would you rather sit there and go, oh, shit, I really wished 10 years ago I had done this. Don't live a life like that. Don't be the kind of person that sits there and regrets. Say, I want to give it a try. I really want to see where this will go. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But it doesn't have to be the end of the world. This for me is really important as an entrepreneur because I have seen many entrepreneurs that have been bitten, twice shy, and then they kick the tin and then they become, you know, like, I don't want to say like Scrooge, but very negative energy. I think the one thing about entrepreneurship is there's a lot of positive energy. If there are bad experiences, share, learn from it, pick yourself up and then try again. And, you know, the wonderful thing about entrepreneurship is we have so many different roles we can play. You can play the accountant in the back office. You can play the marketing person. You can play the CEO. You know, you find a role that suits you, that works for you. And of course, if you don't want to be part of an entrepreneur, you know, organization, you just want to work in a stable, you know, nine to five, you know, established organization, that's fine as well. You know, everyone's got a role to play when it comes to space. So I wouldn't necessarily, you know, like um, think it's only entrepreneurs that are the shining armor. But of course, they have to do the heavy lifting. But then I think everyone has a other role to play, which is also important for the ecosystem. Completely agree. We need different kinds of people doing different kinds of things in different roles to take the ecosystem forward. So, Helen, uh, what skill set do you think is required in addition to a law degree to pursue a career in space law? Oh, very good question. Very good question. I would say um, my own personal bias is enthusiasm. Um, ironically, it's not the law. <laughs> the law, I tell you, is something anyone can learn. But your sense of curiosity, your sense of wanting to understand. This is where I don't think, you know, this is self-initiated. This is not something that is going to be like, right, you sit there and you try and study engineering, right? Unless you have a heart and a passion for it, it's not going to happen. And it will show. It will genuinely show. Um, I think there is a difference between being the technical expert in other words, you know, the person that, that you know, regurgitates the law because there are a lot of lawyers out there that are like that, that do the rote learning. But then you'll get to the point where, you know, what are you trying to do? What is the role of a lawyer? A lawyer is to be a trusted advisor. Obviously, there are some lawyers that end up becoming, you know, an academic and then they want to understand how the law impacts society and all that. That's all good. But let's say for the purposes of this conversation, you're looking at someone who will help the space startup. Then I would say they have to be invested and they need to understand how they're helping the business. So I talk about two things, being the trusted advisor and then at the same time asking yourself, how am I adding value to this? Right. So there's no point being the smart lawyer in the room and say, well, I know the law but you're not helping the business. Then that's just pointless. That's just a waste of everyone's time and money. The investor, and this is where obviously I'm speaking very specifically to the space lawyer or the aspiring space lawyer, is that you've got to think, how am I adding value? So I'll give you an idea. I got into maritime law on autonomous shipping because I was actually working on a PhD on piracy. So I was actually tackling a real situation of how do we deal with pirates. The autonomous shipping came about by accident, by default of me trying to solve the problem of piracy. So take it one step back. What is the problem with piracy? It's illegal fishing. It's the hijacking of ships. It's the kidnap and ransom. 
I then thought, well, what if there were no, there was no one on the ship? You see the logic now. So then I thought about autonomous shipping. When I explored autonomous shipping, I was like, oh my gosh, there's a whole world out there I haven't even looked at, right? And then when you look at that, then you start looking at things differently. Then you start realizing, wait a second, wait a second, there's no law on this. In fact, there's no procedures on this. And it becomes very interesting. And then that's when you find a niche for yourself and you get involved, right? So how can I say right now at this point in time, there is going to be so much opportunity, not just for lawyers. I'm talking about the whole umbrella concept of emergent technologies, right? I'm talking about AI. I'm talking about, you know, basically what you guys as engineers are going to develop. Think about it, right? Let's say you get very excited with the technology. And I've done, by the way, if you're interested, I've done a talk um, at a conference called Rise of AI where I spoke in front of 500 engineers and I spoke about future legal cases, not space related, but technology related and how we're going to deal with that. And I pose the question back to the engineer, right? So let's say you develop an amazing technology that's able to do X, Y, and Z. Flowing from that, you either do it for the good or you do it for the bad. Now, I'm not the kind of person that says, well, you know, like a pen is just a pen. It's neither good or bad. It depends on your intention and how you use it. Right, you can use the pen to write a lovely essay. You can use a pen to try and stab someone. So it's a similar, a similar thing, yeah. So when I talk about the AI and technology, it's the same thing. You know, in at the UN, there's a whole talk about the AI for good, AI for good. So you got the AI for good, or you could use AI for warfare, yeah. But flowing from that, obviously, there has to be some understanding of how we're going to use this technology, be it for good or for bad. More recently, you know, there are some really amazing, um, you know, AI personalities where basically, you know, it's not fake news, but it's like they can replicate some personas as if they're talking. Yeah, like breaking news. Obama is speaking, but actually it's not Obama. It's actually an AI. Yeah, it's an AI computed um, replica that looks exactly like Obama announcing the news on X, Y, and Z, but it's not him. So then there's all these other flowing issues of, you know, cyber, of, you know, all this. And this is where, you know, and this is where it actually does impinge more than just law. It impinges on societal values. It impinges on, you know, what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. And this is where, you know, as, you know, going back to your idea of, well, is the law going to be developed by the states or is it going to be a stakeholder, you know, public-private approach? Absolutely, right? Because it's not for anyone to say, well, I think this is how the law should be because it's not going to work if people disagree, right? So I think particularly, and if you don't mind, it's about space. Yes, absolutely, human space flight. You know, that is absolutely, you know, first and foremost, it's not just partly entertainment. Safety has to be ensured as much as possible right? Otherwise, it would be like a suicide mission, right? So, so you know, people need to be comfortable and confident. And then what are the safeguards and all that? But then we really need to talk about technology as well, because the power of technology, like we all know, like, you know, I remember I used to joke how I used to have a cousin back then, who's no longer obviously five years old, but back then at five years old, whilst he couldn't even write his own name or whatnot, he could, you know, play computer games pretty damn well. <laughs> you know, to the point that I'm feeling embarrassed. So if we know in terms of, I'm speaking, think, I mean, I'm thinking and speaking specific of millennials, you know, that they are 
of a totally different generation, you know, with a totally different skill set where, you know, it's no longer the paper, the pen and the chalk and the boards. And we're talking about technologies. You know, I always think of it like this. With great power comes great responsibility. Our downfall would be not knowing that we have great power and the responsibility that goes with it. And I'm going to actually recommend a really great psychologist and speaker, um, Jordan Jeff- Jeff- Jefferson, I think that's his name. Um, he Jensen, he talks a lot about responsibility as young, he talks specifically about young adult men, but let's just say generally, let's say us, you know, this generation, right? It's all good that you can be so smart and you can do all this. What are you going to do with it? right? What are you going to do with it? And where are the checks and balances that, that go with it, right? And and I think he, 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 whilst he's a psychologist, he talks, he talks a lot of, you know, um, ethical, um, philosophical questions, which I think we also need to think at the forefront and not at the back end. Yeah. So I think this is where it gets, gets very interested. So, so I think this whole, so I, I think I'm not answering your question. Am I answering your question? But I think to the point of who needs to be part of this discussion, how can we get involved? I think it needs to be looked at, you know, holistically. Yeah, that's my view. Were you talking about Jordan Peterson or is it? Yes, yes. Okay, great. The Canadian professor of psychology and okay, I will definitely look him up. Interesting. It's great to know that you didn't say having a law degree is the most important thing and that anyone can. <laughs> so that's great. It opens up, uh, opens this up to a lot of people. That's, that's very interesting. You've shared a lot of insights into your world and how space law and the whole uh, landscape, Helen, thank you so much. And one last question is if space enthusiasts or young professionals or students want to reach you, what's the best way to do so? Yeah. So I have a telegram and I would encourage people to join. Um, and I'm also on LinkedIn. So I encourage young professionals to basically, you know, start ne- networking as soon as possible. And then for those who want a bit more lighthearted, you know, um, I guess following what I'm doing, then Instagram is also a way. It's New Space 2060. And that is more personal, you know. So you've got LinkedIn, which is more professional, Instagram, which is more informal. And then Telegram, people are interested in hearing, um, you know, my daily readings. Um, and I, from time to time, also run courses. And then, of course, I also do consults as well, consultations, like one-on-one, how people want to, you know, work on what they're doing. So, yeah. Thank you very much, Helen. It's been a super fun conversation. Thank you so much. You've shared a lot of insights. Thank you. Thank you so much as well. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here on your show.